Good morning, River West Church family. My name is Christopher. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Whoever you are on the other side of the camera, wherever you are, I'm so grateful that you're tuning in today. Just want to encourage you this morning, wherever you're at, if you're in a home church community or tuning in online, go ahead and grab a cup of coffee or tea, pull out your favorite comfy fall blanket, grab somebody that you love, grab a Bible, And we're going to be jumping into the scriptures today as we wrap up our series that's been entitled, I Will Build My Church. Over the past several weeks, as we've been looking to these unique qualities that mark the church, what we've discovered as we've opened the scriptures together is that Jesus has called his church, equipped his church in every age to pursue the things that are closest to his heart. Things like unity and prayer, faith, mission, and biblical reconciliation. However, as we've reflected on these traits that set the church apart from every other kind of community, I've realized that none of these qualities come easy. And as a church community pursues these things together, unity and prayer, mission and reconciliation, it often results in conflict. In fact, more than ever, I've become personally convinced as a pastor and leader that if we're going to become the kind of church that Jesus is calling us to be, friends, that he's asking us to be in 2020, it's going to require a whole lot of one thing, resilience, resilience. I love the way that Webster defines this word resilience. He calls it the ability to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. And think about it. Isn't that what we could all use a little more of in our life right now? The ability to bend and stretch and flex in a year that's been filled with so many complex challenges, pressures, and pain points. By way of illustration, this last week I made an impromptu Amazon purchase of smiley-faced stress balls for my kids. Now you know that it's 2020 when there is a box of smiley-faced stress balls on your kitchen counter. Now, while I actually have little hope that these small, little, yellow, resilient things that stretch and compress will help my kids focus or fidget less as they make their way through Zoom school each day, Maybe I can get away with actually giving these prepackaged little yellow stretch ball, stress balls out to kids instead of snack-sized Butterfingers this Halloween. <laughs> but come to think of it, as a box of 24 of these things showed up to my house and I made eye contact, them, eye contact with them as I was preparing breakfast each day, I began to wonder if these little yellow smiley face balls might be an icon for the times that we're living in. 
little yellow reminders that bend and stretch when stress and pressure is applied. Deep down, don't you want to become the kind of person who can withstand pressure and stress and setbacks in life and somehow retain faith and hope and love and peace and joy in the midst of a pandemic. Isn't it inspiring to be around resilient people of faith? Chances are many of you are this kind of person, or at least you're sitting next to this resilient kind of person who refuses to give up or become embittered by life's adversities, whether it's things like illness or financial setbacks and hardships or even personal failures, no matter what life dishes out, resilient people of faith have a way of overcoming hardships and coming through the other side stronger, wiser, and by God's grace, even better in some way. Now, of all the traits that a church could possess right now in the midst of this global pandemic, in the face of so many complex, painful, polarizing issues that we're all trying to navigate, perhaps none is more essential to the life and to the health and to the mission of the church than resilience. After all, it was Jesus himself that said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, which insinuates and tells us there's pressure, there's stress. But Christ knew that his church would face 2,000 years of challenges and struggles, including the coronavirus pandemic social unrest, racial tensions, and political polarization that has marked 2020. But he also knew this. He knew that none of these things would prevail or prevent him from building his church to be light and salt and healing and hope to our world. So today, as we wrap up our series together, we're going to take a look at a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of new converts to Christianity who were living in modern-day Turkey, who were experiencing overwhelming adversity. And as we do, the Lord will reveal qualities through this text that will help us, River West, to become a resilient, faithful, loving witness to the world today. So pull out your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be diving in at verse 7 today. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What I want to do with the remainder of our short time together here online today is I want to drop four traits that make up a resilient church that we just saw from this passage. So if you're taking notes today, these four traits are prayer, love, service, and worship. Oh, four. <laughs> prayer, love, service, and worship. Now, before we begin to explore and unpack these four traits, first we must address the apocalyptic elephant in the room in this passage, if you will, and, and really drill down on what the Apostle Peter meant when he wrote, the end of all things is at hand. You know, over the last week, many people freaked out online, as the news of a refrigerator-sized asteroid was projected to pass right over the Earth, come very close to the Earth, on November 2nd, the day before the election. Now, although the asteroid isn't big enough to cause catastrophic harm or set off a chain of events, in our world that would lead to the end of all things. This certainly set off a small contingency of Christian doomsdayers and televangelists who never pass on an opportunity to make end times predictions and declare with gusto, the end of all things is at hand. And now while there's been certainly moments in 2020, maybe when we were all locked in our homes and Oregon was on fire, where I've secretly wondered if the end timers were right or onto something, here's what you need to know about what Peter is trying to impress upon these first century Christians when he wrote, the end of all things at, was at hand. When he wrote this, he was not predicting that Christ would return in a few weeks or months or that the world would come to a crashing halt and end. When Peter wrote these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he meant to impress upon his readers and recipients of this letter, these Christians that were scattered throughout, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, is that all the major events in God's redemptive, saving plan, culminating in Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church in Acts 2, it had been accomplished and fulfilled Therefore, according to Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers like the author of Hebrews, these authors would regularly refer to the times that they were living in, an epoch marked by the birth of the church that would be consummated and come to an end with Christ's return as the last days. And because you and I are actually living in this chapter of redemptive history, as strange as it might sound, 
biblically speaking, we too are living in the last days. And the end of all things is at hand. You see, in Peter's mind, when he declared this, he was focused on this glorious truth that Christ's return could happen at any moment and every fractured corner of creation. Every painful reality of sin in our world would be healed. However, this conviction about Christ's return and rule and reign didn't lead the Apostle Peter to, to speculate about dates and times. Sadly, as so many end times discussion, discussion groups often fixate on. Instead, as we'll see, this conviction about Christ's return, it led the Apostle Peter to call the church to be spiritually awake and resilient in their faith and devotion to Jesus in the face of extreme adversity. Which brings us to trait number one of a resilient church. And trait number one is this. A resilient church is a praying church. Look back, if you will, at what Peter wrote right after declaring that the end of all things is at hand. He says, therefore, so he links this apocalyptic insight into Christ's rule and reign and return to this list of three things. He says, therefore, in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so he links these two things. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be sober-minded but for the sake of your prayers as a community. So how are these three, three things, self-control, sober-mindedness, and prayer connected? As we'll see, Peter, Peter's exhortation to the church to pray takes on far greater meaning when you consider the intense persecutions and sufferings that these first century believers were experiencing who received this letter. You know, at the time that Peter wrote this, the Roman Emperor Nero, as some of you may be aware, was hunting down new converts to Christianity and persecuting them in heinous, almost unspeakable ways. Throwing Christians into Colosseum, Colosseums and feeding them to lions for sport. Dipping believers in tar and burning them alive as human torches to light his gardens, his, his extravagant gardens as he threw dinner parties. Nero would, would tie Christians, according to reports and, and historians like Josephus, that, that marked and documented Many of the sufferings Christians experienced, Nero would tie Christians to his chariot and drag them through the streets of Rome behind him until they were dead. So throughout this letter, Peter is calling the church over and over again to pray in the midst of this extreme context of persecution. In fact, if you look, even in chapter 4, this admonition to the church to become this kind of church, it's sandwiched between two sections on suffering. 
And so that's the context. And he's telling the church, we need to pray as if our lives depend on it. Because in Peter's context, the life of the church and the life of people actually depended on them praying and turning to God. As many of you know and and have participated throughout the month of October, we have called people to respond by coming and praying, a time of urgent prayer. Pastor Adam has, has told our church that we need to learn how to pray as a community as if our lives depend on it. And now, while we're not facing the extreme kinds of persecutions that these first century Christians were facing when Peter wrote this letter, there's never been a more critical time for us to become faithful in prayer. And so we're going to actually be extending the times of prayer three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're going to be extending these times into November. And friends, here's why we're absolutely committed to this. We know as a church, we cannot become a resilient community of faith until we become a praying community. So in order for us to become this kind of community, a praying community, a community that's resilient in prayer, Peter instructs the church to pursue prayer by linking two qualities in this passage that are actually inextricably tied to prayer. First, he tells us that we should be self-controlled in verse 7. When Peter uses this term for self-control, this Greek term sophroneo, it describes a person who is level-headed, full of sound judgment, not impulsive or easily swayed by opinions or emotions. In Peter's mind, if we have this kind of self-control and sound judgment, to see ourselves, then we'll quickly realize our own weakness, our own sinful disposition, our own limitations, and above all, our desperate need for God's guidance, provision, protection, and grace. And prayer glorifies God because it acknowledges all of these weaknesses and needs And it acknowledges our dependence on God's resources. So not to pray or to live or carry around a prayerless attitude, in effect, is to assert our own self-sufficiency, to trust in our own resilience and resources apart from God. Which reminds me of a phrase that's become one of the popular adages of our day. And the phrase is, you've got this. You've got this. Now, while this phrase, which is typically followed by flexed muscle emojis when somebody dispenses of this wisdom and advice, like, you've got this, it's usually offered by well-meaning people who want to encourage us, perhaps when we're facing hard challenges or things that we're navigating. But here's the problem. 
if you and I wake up believing each day, secretly, deep down, that we've got this in our day, then ultimately we're going to live throughout that day trusting in our own resilience, our own capability, our own resources, instead of turning to God in prayer. So, my friends, listen. One of the lessons that God, I believe, has driven home to so many of us during this pandemic, me included, throughout COVID and racial tensions and protests and the wildfires that have ravaged our community and state is that you and I do not have this. We don't got this. No matter how resilient, smart, or resourceful you may be apart from prayer, you and I will never become the church that Jesus Christ is calling us to be in this moment apart from prayer. If you agree with me, say an amen, put it in the comments section over there, or praise hands. <laughs> Let me know. Do you agree? I'd love to see you if you agree at one of our times, our prayer gathering times in the month of November. Secondly, Peter, after telling the church to be self-controlled, he also adds this term and says, be sober-minded. And the term that Peter uses and employs here, it literally means do not be drunk. But Peter intends something more than not being intoxicated or under the influence of, of liquor. What he means by saying, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, is that we should be awake and alert. Peter uses the same term in chapter 5 when he tells the church to be sober, to be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it's a painful reality right now that we have a very real adversary that's devouring and dividing people in so many countless ways. And so Peter, he's, I can see he's just begging the church, be sober-minded. Don't become intoxicated with the culture. Be awake, be alert in prayer. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul using this same term for sober-mindedness uses this term to encourage the church as he was addressing Christians in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul writes and he says, So let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. There's that word. For those that sleep, sleep at night. And those that get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And what I love here that Paul links is he believes that fervent prayer and sober-mindedness, it doesn't just lead the church to be aware and attentive of the times they're living in. It actually leads to more fervent devotion and love. So the, these ideas of being self-controlled, sober-minded people, it should lead 
us not only to resilient prayer, but resilient love as well, which is exactly what we see in 1 Peter chapter 4. In verses 8 to 9, look at this picture of not resilient prayer, but resilient love in verses 8 and 9. Peter writes and he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which brings us to trait number two. First, we saw a resilient church is a praying church. And now we see that a resilient church is a loving church. This is absolutely fascinating. The Greek term that Peter uses when he writes that we should love, but love uniquely by loving earnestly. This Greek term that he uses in this passage to describe love, this word that in most of our translations is, is the word earnestly, it means to be extended or stretched out to the maximum. It was often used to describe a horse fully extended in gallop or an athlete exerting every ounce of energy, stretching every muscle, every tendon and ligament, going flat out. I love that picture of what biblical love looks like. You know, loving, lovable people is easy. It doesn't stretch us that much. And it doesn't require this earnest kind of love. Loving people earnestly, especially those that we disagree with, it stretches us to our limits. So Peter tells the church, friends, here's how I want you to love I want you to fully extend yourself to love those on the margins, to love your enemies. Use every ounce of energy and muscle to keep on loving one another earnestly like Jesus has loved us. This implies that love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, it takes sustained intent and strenuous effort, such as athletes or long-distance runners expend as they see the finish line somewhere on the horizon, and they dig in and go flat out to finish instead of giving up. River West, the last few months have not been easy. I know that. So many of you, I know, Lord, the Lord has, has pushed so many of us to our limits. It's not easy to love like Jesus and involves way more sweat than sentiment or mere emotion. It requires sacrifice and it often stretches us in ways that are personally costly, but it's worth it. Because according to Peter, loving one another this way, it covers a multitude of sins, he tells us in verse 8. Love one another earnestly. Why? Because love, it covers a multitude of sins. And what I love after just this heartfelt 
admonition to the church to love earnestly this way. Peter gives us a practical application so that we can love this way. So in verse 9, he tells us, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The biblical word for hospitality, whenever you see it, it's a pairing of two Greek words, the word for love and the word for strangers. So literally put together, hospitality, when we read that term in the New Testament, it means to love strangers. So whenever the Bible speaks of hospitality, it's always tied to aliens and strangers, people who aren't like us, people who are outside of our normal social circles, people who vote differently than us, look different than us, and who might even rub us the wrong way. In fact, in the context of 1 Peter, remember the church is scattered and many Christians are scattered and they're being persecuted by Romans and Greeks and Hellenists. And we see in the book of Acts, Jesus is building his multi-ethnic community and Jews and Greeks and Hellenists, they're all coming together around tables. And you know what's happening? Conflict. In Acts chapter 6, you can see <laughs> as a food distribution ministry is kicked off in the church, uh, the Hellenists, the Greeks, actually feel left out. They feel that favoritism is being shown. And so there's a complaint that arose within the church as this hospitality effort went out. It resulted in grumbling. Because again, loving one another and showing hospitality is not easy, which is why Peter tells us to show hospitality without grumbling. You know, I, I just want to have a candid moment here with you all and just be honest that one of the most heartbreaking things that I've witnessed this year is the way that in our community, and in our nation, people have become more polarized and divided and hostile to one another than any other point I've ever witnessed and seen. Even within the church, folks who were once friends and neighbors have become strangers and enemies. With so many polarizing issues dividing us, right now from political ideology to personal convictions about the pandemic and mask wearing. I don't know if there has ever been a moment, my friends, where we've needed this kind of hospitality more than right now. And here's the thing. Although extending hospitality and welcome always involves some element of cost, it isn't really that complicated. Hospitality is just about opening up your life, your resources, your home, whatever you have in your disposal, extending it in love and kindness to someone in need or someone that feels on the outside and alone. And while this personally, certainly could be a refugee or someone who has lost their home in the wildfire in communities like Gates and Scott Mills in the Rogue Valley or Santium Canyon. It could just as easily be a Democrat 
or a Republican or that Christian brother and sister that you'd much rather grumble about than extend grace to or go on a walk with. If we believe the gospel of Christ, that Jesus welcomed us when we were his enemies, when we were strangers and outsiders, and that on the cross he spilled his sinless, precious, innocent blood so that his love could cover a multitude of my sins, of your sins, then how could we do anything but extend every resource in our disposal to love earnestly and show hospitality to everyone that we meet, regardless of who they are or how they vote? Can I get an amen? Amen. Trait number three, we've seen a resilient church is a praying church. A resilient church is a loving church. But now that we see in this passage, it's also a serving church. A resilient church is a church that serves. Look at this picture of service in verses 10 to 11 while I pick up my notes right here. In verses 10 to 11, Peter writes and he tells us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, at River West Church, one of the central guiding convictions that shapes the way that our church gathers and also lives out Jesus' mission is a principle that we call every member ministry. A belief that the Holy Spirit has uniquely equipped every member of the body of Christ with gifts and abilities and passions to serve others and showcase God's grace. And so I want you to look at this again. In verse 10, Peter, he gives this truth with one of my favorite truths in the New Testament when he writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, within the body of Christ, no matter who you are, you have received a gift. Each of us has been endowed with spiritual gifts and abilities and passions and dreams that the biblical writers, when these gifts are exercised to build up the church, they're called the charismata. A combination of two words, charis and mata, grace and gift. We sometimes call them spiritual gifts, but they're actually more technically gifts of grace. Grace gifts, charis, mata, the grace gifts. Peter gives us three examples of what it looks like to use these grace gifts in the body of Christ. And so he shows us that when we use our hospitality or when we speak or teach or preach the oracles of God, the mysteries of the faith, we elevate within the body of Christ the good news of Jesus or we serve and meet the felt needs of others, that we are actually using these gifts to show off God's grace. 
Now, in this passage, although this gift list is certainly not exhaustive, the aim of all three of these things, hospitality, preaching, and serving in this passage, is the same. To meet needs, but to showcase God's varied grace to the world. You see, unless you use your gift, then our world is going to be missing out on some aspect of God's grace. A church that is full of grace to overflowing is a church where every member is using their gift as a good steward to show off different dimensions and aspects of God's varied grace. Have you ever attended the symphony and watch what happens before the concert begins? My son used to be in band, and so I know this scene full well. As the musicians would come on stage, each one, they begin tuning their instrument. The strings begin plucking, the brass section begins to warm, the reeds start to squeal, the timpani player beats the skins and brings them into proper tension, and so on and so on. And as you sit there, the noise actually doesn't sound that great. It's just a cacophony of sound. There's, there's no melody. There's certainly, in the context of school band, there's rarely harmony. There's nothing of unity or beauty. Certainly nothing worth paying for. Mostly just painful racket. But then something happens that shifts and changes the whole scene. As the conductor walks up on the stage and every musician makes eye contact and readies their instrument, with the tap of his or her baton, every member of the orchestra stops doing their own thing. They ready themselves. They prepare their instrument. And when they play together as one, instead of discord, as each instrument plays their individual part of a unified symphony, it's beautiful. It just washes over you with delight. River West Church, when each member of the body of Christ uses their gifts by faith to love and serve others, especially those on the outside, and we live as good stewards of whatever instrument and gift God has given us, the church becomes a symphony of grace. And that's what our world needs to hear in this moment where there's so much dissonance, there's so much hatred, there's so much angst, there's so much discord. May our church become the kind of resilient community that can actually showcase God's varied grace to our hurting world. Now, I know this certainly won't be an easy task to become this kind of community where every member is using their gifts to serve others and show off God's grace. But Peter reminds us in this passage of something so critical. We do all these things in verse 11. Peter reminds us whether it's hospitality, loving, serving, teaching, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which brings us to the final trait, but the most important trait of all. A resilient church is a praying church. It's a loving church. It's a serving church. But ultimately, and in all these things, it's a worshiping church. It's a worshiping church. You see, if the church is called to be this symphony of grace, then there's only one who is worthy of our worship and allegiance. Only one king, Jesus Christ, who conquered death. To him and to him alone, as Peter writes, belong glory and dominion forever. River West, in this season where the pandemic has disrupted so much of our daily lives, including the way that we gather and worship together as a community, I know that it has been hard. It is tested for us as pastors, the elders of the church. It's tested our resilience, but it's reminded us of our core identity as worshipers of Jesus Christ. We will never stop worshiping. We will never stop giving Jesus the praise that he is due. In November, by faith, please be praying. November 8th, on November 8th, we're going to return to in-person gatherings. We have been working and praying throughout the month for God's grace and favor in this. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's going to take prayer. It's going to take your heart, your love, River West Church, we have never needed every single one of you more than we need you in this moment to just be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Stay tuned in, stay resilient, because as we do, we believe that we will stand on the other side of these troubles, a brighter, more resilient, faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord now and worship our great Savior.